Hello, welcome to Hospice Insights, the law and beyond, where we connect you to what matters in the ever-changing world of hospice and palliative care. No delay in store for hospices. October 1st brings new election and addendum requirements. The hospice industry expressed its collective disappointment when CMS declined to give hospices additional time to implement the new election statement and addendum requirements. So beginning on October 1st, 2020, hospices will need to roll out new forms, processes, and training to address these new conditions of payment. In this episode, Meg Pekarski and Andrew Prenton discuss the key takeaways and flexibilities provided by the rule, as well as insights on how they should guide implementation. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, How are you doing? Hey Meg, uh, great to be here. Uh, thanks, thanks for um, inviting me here. Uh, doing well. It's um, already uh, kind of coming towards late August here. Surprisingly, it's been many, many months uh, working from home and, and, and the <laughs> pandemic, but but doing well, all things considered. Uh, well, and I. Talking about the new wage index here reminds me when you started, uh, we started working together last July, right? I think like your first week you're on our (laughs) podcast talking about the wage index uh, for 2020. That's right. Uh, And so... Here we come, full circle. Full circle. Um, and so, so anyway, we had wanted to do this, um, uh, you know, right away when the the wage index came out. But I think that that in addition to some other work that was very time sensitive, I, I also think we wanted to really put some thought into what are some takeaways and how can we be helpful? Because I think the mission of of our group is really answering the question, how can we be a service to our to our clients in the industry and how can we be helpful? Um, so I think that today's podcast, what I wanted to cover, Andrew, was less about every single element of the uh, the election and the agenda, but more of the big picture sort of operation things. Because while I, I think many people feel panicked about these new requirements, I think that when you break it down into, well, when is this addendum really going to come into play and how can I guard against you know, denials related to my election. I think we have some some good food for thought there. So, but but before we get there, Andrew, why don't you set the stage? Because you know, we help provide some some comments back uh, to the proposed wage index, hoping to get some changes. Uh, and so. So tell us what we wanted, and then what yep, we got. Yep. I know it's sort of bleak, so um, yeah. But, but why yep. don't you give that? Uh, absolutely. So um, you're right. So back in the spring, uh, CMS released the proposed rule. Uh, we provided comments, and then um, you know w- when the final rule was was released at the end of the July, uh, just like you said, didn't really get a lot of what we wanted. So kind of r- running through at a high level here. We wanted a delay to these new requirements. Um, they had been scheduled to take effect October 1, um, uh, 2020. Um, we thought maybe CMS would would be sympathetic to the fact that hospices and other providers are really struggling with the pandemic and trying to, to, to provide care during the pandemic. 
Um, unfortunately, CMS, they did decline to um, provide an additional year uh, extension or, or additional time for hospices to implement these requirements. So um, they will be taking effect as scheduled for elections starting October 1, 2020. Yeah, also well, and I, I think too, you know, there's a lot of practical <laughs> hurdles, you know, just beyond the, the pandemic that people are scratching their heads about is, you know, my EMR vendors, there's a lot of people that we rely on to do this, the stuff that they're asking us to do, including like printers, if you're doing hard copy elections and, you know, other things. And, and so really tried to to push hard on the the practical challenges, but to no avail. Right, right. Unfortunately. So, yeah. Um, we were also hoping that uh, CMS might relent a little bit in in kind of pursuing this characterization of the election statement addendum as a as a new Medicare condition of payment, or at the very least, if they're not wouldn't go that far, that they would you know provide some some standards, some clear standards for uh, how how CMS and the Medicare contractors would uh, kind of implement uh, that new condition of payment from a from a kind of Medicare payment perspective. Again, here, we did not get what we wanted. CMS went forward with its characterization of the addendum as a new uh, Medicare condition of payment and frankly didn't establish any kind of clear standards on what that means. So as we'll see here a, a bit later, there's a lot of unknowns kind of with respect to, to this whole condition of payment, uh, the, the addendum as a new condition of payment. Yeah, and we really, took another kick at the can there and trying to push back hard on just our legal questions surrounding is, can this really be a new condition of payment without going through, you know, a statutory change or, and then also logically speaking, something that happens, you know, after, um, uh, essentially after someone elects, can that really invalidate and how? And what, like you said, we'll get into some of the, the unknowns here about how can this practically speaking really implicate payment and if so, how? But um, yep, didn't, didn't relent there. Um, but we did it, get some changes uh, on the model election statement. Obviously, people don't have to to uh, use that election statement, but I, I know you and I had talked about some concerns about their election statement, which I think one of the things we're going to talk about is um, wise or should folks consider using that election statement. I think our pause was it did have some non-required elements and and ways I think that from our perspective could increase user error. Um, and so, so anyway, um, tell us a little bit about what we got there on the, the model election, because that's yep. really the only bright spot. Yeah, totally. Yeah, just just like you said, we, you know, one of the things we wanted CMS to do, um, you know, in terms of updating its model forms compared to the versions that they released in the spring, we did want them to remove some elements um, that are not required content elements per the regulations or, or you know, per the, um, the election statement regulations. So, for example, um, CMS did uh, decide to remove the these these check boxes where the patient would select whether they did in fact want the addendum, whether they were requesting the addendum. 
Um, that's not a required content element for the election statement itself. As we'll see, that required content is, is that the hospice has to provide notice of the patient's right to receive, but the patient doesn't need to make that decision on the election statement. So CMS, for example, removed those checkboxes where the patient would have indicated, yes, I want the election statement. No, I don't want the election statement. You mean an election statement addendum? Excuse me. Yes. Yes. Yep. So, and I th that's such a critical point. And I think while it seems like a minor victory, I think is really important because um, when we talk about the flexibilities and how you implement this and what processes you want to do, um, that is really, really important is that they did say like, yeah, you don't need to document the patient's choice on the form. So, something you and I have been um, paralleling this to is unlike when they added the attending physician uh, language to the election form, that's a two-part requirement. Like they both have to acknowledge your right to choose an attending and then identify an attending if they have one. And yep. that both needed to be on the election statement here. It is just the notice that they can request this addendum if they want to. And I think that that's where we're going to spend some time talking about, well, okay, that's actually good. And how then do I build a process around that? And how do I memorialize that? Because they haven't created the proof standard, right? Like there's no one way to prove that someone did or didn't want it. And so I think that, that, that that's um, really important, but probably... Not not the sexy stuff that made headlines, right? But I guess <laughs> right. for you all who think about this day in day out, it was um, something that that we have been playing around with a bit. So, yep, yep. Um, so I guess any other insight into what we got versus what we wanted? Yeah, I, you know, a couple other kind of high pieces here, high, high level pieces here. Um, there were a couple kind of specific areas where, um, you know, us and, and the hospice industry wanted a little bit more guidance on, on what some of this stuff means. For example, um, you know, we had asked CMS to provide some guidance on the use of patient or representative electronic signatures in the context of the addendum and the election statement. Um, CMS had previously sort of kind of deferred to the Medicare contractors, didn't really want to um, come out and, and kind of specify how um, patient representative electronic signatures would be processed, you know, for medical review. Um, so we wanted a bit more guidance on that. Again, didn't get that. CMS kind of reiterated what it had previously said, which is that this is a, a decision that's left up to the Medicare contractors. So didn't get didn't get um, any additional guidance there. Also, didn't get any additional guidance on what happens if a patient or representative, you know, they request the addendum, but then for whatever reason they don't want to uh, sign the addendum. Um, as we'll see, uh, you know, the the patient or representative signature is a required content element for the addendum. So then the question is raised: Well, what happens if the patient doesn't sign that? Um, CMS, again, here deferred. They did not provide guidance, and they said that this um, really isn't kind of an area that they think will um, there'll be a lot of activity in, so they don't really feel the need to provide guidance at this time. So those, those well, are a bit disappointing, but... Yeah, well, and you and I work together a lot, so 
you're going to get my funnel analogy here, but right, like that's funnel this down is, you know, because again, I think there's a lot of anxiety. How am I going to get all this stuff done is, you know, these are a, a smaller and smaller group of patients, right? So obviously all patients have to have the election statement. How many patients are really going to request this addendum, right? And so some of the things like they have to request it. So, um, you know, you could create a request form or something where they could request it and similar to like a change of attending form or something where they memorialize that so you can prove that indeed they they did request this and you can track that through your system. Again, these the, the things that need to be on this addendum are things that are unrelated to the terminal illness. And so I think it's really critical in the education that we give to our staff and and therefore how it's explained to patients um, is that these things, if they if there are any that are going to be unrelated, that essentially you're not waiving your right to coverage for those and that coverage will continue as it has prior to your start of the hospice election. And so so essentially, you know, I think if if folks were going to incur a lot of expense, I see people maybe clamoring for this form, but if essentially it's like, okay, it's just an awareness factor, but Part D or whatever is going to continue to pay for these items, um, you know, that is, so anyway, I, I think that that's important is the funnel down is, okay, how many people are going to request this form? And then, you know, and then requested at the time of the election and then like what sliver isn't going to sign it and send it back. I mean, hopefully we're talking about slivers and slivers. And so some of this unknown hopefully will feel less scary because it's mm -hmm. like, okay, let's put this in perspective. This isn't everyone, right? I mean, it's not everyone probably isn't going to ask for this form. And so, so anyway, I, I think that to me, it's helpful to think of that as, as a visual and, as you know, our listeners are, are folks who actually have to implement this. I think that's an important reminder and understanding that is is key to training and thinking about what are good processes. Um, and so that that's um, that sort of get into some of these uh, things on the the let's first start with the easier part on the election statement. You know, why don't you explain at a high level what the changes are here? I mean, and and then do you think it's a good idea to use the, the model election statement? I mean, my two cents is when we review election forms, there's a lot of stuff that's not required to be in the election form. And I know you and I, when we revise those, we always say remove this. So so tell us. How does Medicare's election form compare to what we normally see people use? Um, yeah, great. Appreciate the question. Um, so CMS's uh, 
um, their, their new model election statement form, I guess, first of all, it includes the four new required pieces of content for the election statement. Um, so there's now a, a, a kind of an explicit um, statement. You have to include information, um, you know, indicating that services unrelated to the terminal illness are exceptional and unusual. The, the hospice will be providing virtually all care. You have to provide information on uh, patient cost sharing of hospice services, if there are any, if there is any cost sharing. Um, you have to provide the patient now with information on this uh, beneficiary and family-centered care QIO, the the BFF or the BFCC QIO. Yep. <laughs> it's more acronyms. I'm just giggling because it's like that does not roll off the tongue, but um, I know, maybe someday right. it will. Because well, I hope not. I hope that that, right. yeah. that they don't um, get overly involved. But okay. Totally, yeah. So, and this QIO, they they're sort of there to um, kind of provide immediate advocacy is is the term to the patient, so the patient can contact this QIO um, about their right to immediate advocacy, um, the contact information about this QIO. Um, there are we're not going to get into this a lot, but there are a lot of unknowns about you know what is this QIO's function? Are they going to be able to overturn the the you know coverage determination of the hospice? Um, do they have any sort of enforcement power? So th there's a lot of that's unclear on that. But again, it is now a required content element that you have to inform the patient of their right to immediate immediate advocacy from this BFCCQIO. And then finally, and the most Andrew, just, oh, yes. just something to add to that. I mean, I think what I've been hearing is that um, I don't know that the QIOs even know at this point sort of what their role is and how they're going to do it. I think they're going to be getting training from CMS here soon. But um, so I think that this is, as, um, you know, my mentor, Mary Michael would say, you know, you're you're um, flying it while you're building it or whatever. It feels a little bit <laughs> yeah. uh, like that. We're, uh, we're not quite sure exactly what's um, uh, going to happen. And, and as you said, what's their scope of authority? And I, I would expect that they can't overturn our coverage determination, similar to when you go to the QIO, when, you know, if someone's getting, you know, discharged from hospice, yep. we're not required to take them back. I mean, that was, that was made more clear. So, but I think you're exactly right. It is being sort of worked out. And I think a, a theme in our comments is, I think we're going to understand what impacts payment um, and what's the role of the QIO sort of through enforcement, right? Like mm -hmm. sort of the boots on the ground. And I mean, that's what's nice about our practice is we, you know, span uh, the United States. So we really sort of pick up on trends very quickly. And so obviously if we do, we'll be doing a podcast on that. But but I think you're right. It's a, it's a big unknown um, and uh, we'll hope for the best. But um, what else, Andrew? Um, the the last new uh, required content is kind of the most uh, prominent, I guess. It's, we've already kind of addressed this. This is you have to now notify the patient that they have a right to receive an election addendum. And again, that addendum is going to, um, among other things, sort of be a list of conditions, items, services, drugs that the hospice has determined are not related 
to the uh, patient's terminal illness or related conditions and therefore not covered by the hospice. So those are the new content requirements. So in terms of, of how the new CMS model form looks compared to the existing form, those pieces are now all addressed in, in the new form. Um, additionally, we already mentioned that CMS decided to remove the check boxes from their form from earlier this spring um, where the patient would have you know, selected, yes, I want the addendum or no, I don't want the addendum. So CMS removed those, so those aren't in the new form. Um, other differences, um, and we'll kind of get into this as we, you know, start talking too about whether, you know, kind of considerations for how to update your form, but the new CMS form has some new blanks, um, which, you know, can kind of alarm us from a user error perspective, you know, additional blanks are or create room for additional error. You know, a patient could improperly fill out the blank, staff could um, sort of be unclear as to how the blank should be filled out. So the CMS form now does have new blanks where they didn't earlier. Um, those blanks include um, spot for the, the BFCC uh, QIO name and, the, con and, and the, the phone number. So hospices are going to have to kind of figure out what QIO um, you know, is is the QIO for for this specific patient, um, and then also find the phone number. Um, I believe there are only two BFCC QIOs, so that shouldn't be that difficult to figure out which one you know has jurisdiction over your service area. But again, that's a new um, item in the form. Um, CMS also removed the witness section. Not not a big deal, but again, kind of consistent with their overall approach of taking things out of the form that aren't required by regulation to be there. Um, and then, and Andrew, yeah. well, just to to, I guess, and we're going to post the the election form in the liner notes for for this podcast episode, but <clears throat> so people can get it there. And I mean, I, I think that in terms of, you know, oftentimes. And can be beneficial is related to the effective date language. They have a blank for that, just like when is this effective? And then they ha also have a signature date. Oftentimes we see and and have not seen problems with um, when people say the effective date is the date I sign this unless I identify, you know, a, a, another date, which, you know, cannot be a date, date in the future, essentially. And so um, to your point about blanks and all this stuff, and so, you know, there's probably some, you know, room around the edges. But I think the takeaway here, though, Andrew, is take a hard look and like, you know, take take ego aside and like, oh, I'm really attached to what I created over the last 25 years is that there is some security when you use CMS's form. There could be some wisdom in, in using the model election statement, yep. maybe with some minor, minor edits. Yep, yep. Yeah, and, and I guess, yeah, I like your idea of, you know, for the, the start of care, the effective date of the election to, um, you know, have the default date be the date on which the patient signs the election statement, unless they fill in the blank stating that the uh, effective date will begin on a future date. 
Um, and yeah, I totally agree with your point about there's, there's, you know, wisdom and comfort in using, um, the, uh, CMS model, just because that, um, it, you know, it'd be hard for a Medicare contractor to look at the model that you're using and say, well, you're missing, you know, X, Y, or Z content requirement because CMS, um, included that in their model form. I, I think, or, or yep. I think even more subjective than that is, I don't think this, the words you use to address this element, I don't feel like it's sufficient, right? That So we dealt with that seven, eight years ago when, when CGS was saying you didn't use palliative rather than curative in describing that. Interestingly, CMS does not use, quote, that magic language in its form, um, despite, you know, in the past, we, you know, and those were all ended up being resolved. But I, I do think there's some comfort uh, in in that. But, but again, probably, um, you know, take a fine tooth comb and some of the suggestions we talked about, I think, could be, be helpful. So that, I think, in terms of risk management, um you know, from a content standpoint, you can you can really reduce your risks there by by perhaps throwing away what you did and developed over 20 years and it's now three pages long and stuff and, and take a look at, at considering this and make it more streamlined, which I think gets into the next place I wanted to go, which is um, so the election is intended to meet very specific legal requirements. We as a hospice provide lots of information that further describes how care is provided and your rights and responsibilities and things like that. And so the patient handbook um, can be a place where you can provide additional information to folks. And I think that this additional information might be a place where you describe about how they can request this addendum uh, if they indeed want it and, you know, describe what it means when drugs are unrelated from a you know patient's perspective of are they going to be responsible for paying for these and essentially whatever existed before for this is going to exist now whatever coverage you had it's like the world shouldn't change because your waiver of traditional medicare um, benefits doesn't apply for that because it's just unrelated things so i think as you, as folks think about how they're going to revise their systems and processes, one might be take a hard look at your election, then how do you want to address some of these things in your handbook? Um, and so you and I have spent some time talking about that. What, what, um, what kinds of thoughts do you have about this handbook idea and what might go in the handbook as it relates to this addendum? Um, because CMS gave us some flexibility around um, documenting, you know, that we provided information about this and described it. So share your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and again, here, as, as we've stated, the with respect to the addendum itself, the new condition of payment is that that addendum must be provided only upon request. And if there are, you know, these conditions, items, services, drugs that are unrelated um, and th that the hospice has determined not to cover because they're unrelated. So that's the condition of payment. But 
CMS in, in its rule commentary does say that they expect hospices to document that the addendum was discussed, uh, whether it was requested. They're saying that, you know, if they're doing a medical review of this uh, of a hospice and they're, they're not seeing a signed addendum, that having some sort of documentation um, that the addendum was discussed and requested or not requested, that that could help, um, you know, avoid claim denials, even though, as we just said, that documentation itself is not a condition of payment. But again, I, I think this is an area, Meg, where, um, you know, having a policy or, 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 you know, some some section of the of the, the admission handbook could be helpful here to kind of automate this process, you know, to systematize this this documentation process um, documenting whether the addendum was requested or not. So, um, you know, you could have a policy, uh, again, perhaps include that in the admission handbook um, that says if the patient or representative wants the addendum, that they are going to affirmatively request it. And that can be done, you know, you could even develop a new form, a, a you know, addendum request form similar to or at least analogous to the uh, change of attending physician form, that you you know you'd have a separate and distinct form whereby uh, the patient could fill it out, and then that's how they request the addendum. If you have some sort of process like that, um, that could help um, kind of put some infrastructure in place here, um, you know, so that if if you are audited or you know during post payment review, you can point to the process. You know, the 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 patient has to re affirmatively request it in order to get the addendum, um, you know, so the fact that there is an addendum in there, there isn't a filled out request form, um, you know, that, that could support the idea that uh, the patient, in fact, didn't request the form and therefore um, the reviewer shouldn't expect to find an executed form in the medical record. Yeah, and I think that that's helpful. And I think in terms of the, you could also, um, you know, in your EMR, because most people have an EMR uh, that that has upon admission, you know, certain things that are being filled out. So oftentimes the initial assessment is happening at the same time they're electing. But, you know, that has a place that says, you know, discuss with patient the addendum and then, you know, and they can check that similar to like I assess their you know, ADL functions or, you know, whatever. I mean, it's sort of built in similar to your assessment form might be this way of documenting the discussion aspect in addition to the request aspect. But I think that what is, what you don't want to do that I think can just be fraught with user error is you don't systematize it and every nurse sort of does it differently. Like sometimes I document that I had this discussion in my notes. Sometimes it's in like, intake notes. Sometimes it's like in the orders section. I mean, you know, I, I think that if you're not clear of where this is going to be documented, how it's going to be documented, and the process for requesting it, I think it's going to be very challenging. And I think it's super important, too, is having a method by which these timeframes are triggered, because that is the other sort of gotcha here, right? Is like, you don't have forever to do this. So once the, the clock starts ticking, 
And so having something that starts that clock that then you can process through your system. And so, you know, I expect there's going to be a lot of variability in the industry about how they do this. So the things we're just talking about are, are sort of food for thought, but, but how do you workflow that to make sure that, that if you don't provide it within the time frame, and, and why don't you talk about what those time frames are, Andrew? So there are two different time frames, and it kind of depends on when the addendum is requested and by whom. So um, if the patient or representative requests the addendum at the time of election, which means the day of the or the, the, the effective date of the election, then the hospice has five days to provide that. Um, if uh, the patient or representative or a non-hospice provider or a Medicare contractor requests the addendum at any date after the effective date of the election, then the hospice must provide the addendum within 72 hours. Um, and, and Meg, to, you know, to kind of further your, your point, I think, um, you know, there's some additional um, areas where, you know, a policy or some sort of systematized workflow um, can really kind of come in handy. We already um, talked about you know, using that to document whether the patient requests an addendum. Uh, I think another area, um, we kind of foreshadowed this earlier at the outset, um, you know, kind of having a, a process for um, documenting that, um, you know, you uh, attempted to get the patient to sign the addendum. Because again, CMS didn't provide guidance on what happens if the patient just refuses to sign the addendum. So again, here, there's kind of room to kind of create policies um, to create some sort of infrastructure um, you know, you could have a policy that essentially says if you don't get the addendum, you know, after day one that you're going to follow up using this method. You know, if you still don't have it after a second day, maybe you follow up with a different method. You know, if you call, you can maybe email or visit the patient just to have some sort of formal process that you're going to follow every time to avoid, um, you know, the admittedly probably rare scenario where the patient actually requests the addendum and then doesn't sign it. Um, and you could even kind of consider, you know, language in, in these communications. You know, we, you know, we understand that um, you've received this. Please let us know if you have any questions, you know, kind of, you know, putting maybe the onus a bit on the patient to come back to you um, if they have any questions or, if you know, kind of have them get have them communicate why maybe they're delaying sending this back, um, you know, just to kind of have have sort of some check-ins built in and documentation built in, I think um, that, you know, that might be helpful going forward. Well, and I, I think a critical point here is, you know, the heartburn people have around, well, how is this going to impact my payment? Like what pay, you know, what amount of payment, when does it start all this different stuff, these unknowns? I mean, I, I do think that the flexibility and lack of line drawing that CMS is doing and, and saying, well, they're, we're not going to state that there's one way to do this, I think is helpful. And so obviously it could could be challenging if if different Macs, you know, interpret things differently. And I think that, you know, the if that comes to pass, obviously then there's need for advocacy and all that stuff. But I mean I think that that and maybe this is me just being bright sided here, but I think that that using that opportunity that they're not saying there's only one way to do this 
in terms of documenting these things, because I think there has to be some level of appreciation that you can, you as a hospice can only do what you can do. Now, us saying, oh, we didn't get it back, but we have no evidence that we tried to do that. And then again, I mean, this is something that you'd want to develop. Like, is there a letter that says something about like they you know, unless we hear otherwise, we acknowledge, you know, understand that you're acknowledging that you've received this or something. It's sort of like, how do you document the absence of something? But I think it's exactly what you said, memorialize these attempts. Um, and then, you know, is there some closeout communication or something that, that sort of memorializes that? And another area when we talk about don't know what aspects of the addendum are going to be considered material to payment, like I have the wrong medical record number on there by accident. I, you know, switch the, the, um, transpose some numbers, um, but everything else is right. Um, you know, we can think of, you know, the continuum, but another one that comes up is, especially if someone requests this on the front end, I mean, your information is only as good as the information you get from the patient and the caregiver about the medications uh, that they are on. And so might there be something on your form that talks about that, hey, this is based on the information that um, was you know, to the best of our knowledge or something um, that was provided by you, the patient and your caregiver and, and stuff. So, because I, I think that, that that's a challenge that we have. I think as hospices in general, we're usually coming in where there's been a dramatic change or pretty significant event. And so there's a lot of moving parts and, and you know, we can do our very best, but Perhaps there's one medication that is missing, like, oh, you didn't tell me about your vitamin D, so I didn't include that, you know. Right. So, so anyway, I think there's just, I guess we're planting seeds here, not that this is the end-all be-all or, you know, these ideas are the best ideas. There's just, I think, food for thought that see the flexibility that is allowed there, as you noted, by by CMS and its commentary by saying, I'm not going to say that you must do it this way. And I think part of part of our listeners are probably like, but I want to know exactly which is the way to do that. And I think we as lawyers sort of, we like that there's some flexibility so you can make some arguments and, you know, and the fact that there isn't one way can actually be very helpful. It's sometimes harder to argue when it is a line has been drawn in the sand and we're on the wrong side of that line. Uh, and, you know, we obviously make creative arguments all the time, but I mean, it, it's something that, that um, I think people need to embrace and then say, but how am I going to prove? Cause a lot of this is proving a negative. Like how do I prove mm -hmm. that they, they didn't want it? How do I prove that? Like, you know, this is only as good as the information I have. Like, how do I prove what I didn't know? Right. You know? Right. So, right. No, I think that's a great point. And, and kind of drilling down a bit uh, specifically on, on this this list of unrelated items conditions drugs etc i think it's it's important also to remember that what you need to include on the addendum are conditions items services drugs that are unrelated to the um, the, the patient's terminal illness related conditions and that the hospice is not covering for that reason 
Notice, though, that what you don't have to include are conditions, items, services, drugs that are related to the terminal illness-related conditions, but that the hospice nevertheless is not covering because they're not part of the care plan. So this isn't the, the addendum, just remember, it isn't sort of a list of everything in the universe that the hospice isn't covering. It really is talking specifically about those things that are not being covered because they're unrelated. So that's exactly also a, right. an important piece to kind of remember. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece. And I think I would caution folks about, oh, well, I'll just be more inclusive and include all this stuff and use this addendum to communicate a bunch of information that's not required to be communicated in this fashion. Sort of like when we talked about how people's election forms have gotten bloated over the years because you just add on to it as a means of communicating things as opposed to saying this particular form is intended to meet this particular legal requirement and I and embrace the flexibility you have to communicate other things in different ways, right? And so um, so I think that, that that's a, a really excellent point because um, it's something that both obvious things, but I think things that are overlooked is, well, it doesn't uh, apply to things that are related. Uh, but not medically necessary. It also doesn't, you know, you don't have to uh, memorialize on the election form whether or not you're requesting that document. That's a big thing, too, and, you know. And so these, and maybe it's just we're lawyers, so we're nitty like this, but I think that those are really important things to pay attention to and not overpromise. So, you know, different context, but, you know, when we're helping folks with plans of correction, we always say, don't overpromise, do what you need to do to fix this. And you may do 10 other things because it's a good idea and you want to do that, but you don't have to and don't don't do more than you need to to essentially meet the the goal of the election statement or the addendum. And so I think that's that's really important. And I, I think at this point we don't have any wisdom on um, you know, the potential impact on payment, like which which aspects of the addendum, if there's something, you know, that's a, a in error or incomplete, how is that going to impact payment? Will it impact payment? How much? How do you correct it? I mean, these are some open questions, but I would still harken back to the very beginning of my analogy with the filter down, like how many people are really going to request this? And, you know, again, maybe you're just catching me on a very bright side of day, Andrew, but I mean, I do think that there are some opportunities to not, you know, think that you know, every single patient I program, I'm going to, you know, have to produce an addendum for. I mean, and, and obviously this work we do anyway. So, but I think that having to produce, produce an addendum is a totally different thing, right? Because it's got all these elements, it's a condition of payment. So obviously we're going to continue to document everything that's related and unrelated and all of those things. It's just what we're focused on is when is this required to be memorialized in this certain way and be provided to the patient in this particular time frame and then all these other things. But so, so Andrew, as we close out here, any, any other things you wanted to, to share insights? I mean, yeah, I guess just kind of on this last point of not 
knowing a lot or, you know, not having a lot of guidance on the repayment impact. Um, you know, I, I, I think I was particularly disappointed to see that CMS didn't articulate standards here, even though notwithstanding, uh, Meg, what you were saying earlier about how you know, sometimes the lack of standards or, you know, flexibility can be helpful, but um, uh, really, we don't really know kind of to your point, like, how do you, how do you cure non-compliance? You know, is, is the failure to provide the addendum, is that going to be treated similarly to providing a late addendum or providing an addendum that doesn't have one or more of the of the nine required elements? So, um, you know, I think we'll we'll probably uh, to a large extent need to see kind of how claims are are processed on post payment review, kind of see how the MACs are interpreting this through kind of real life audits. Um, but you know, CMS they did commit to giving us uh, guidance on this issue. And they didn't. Um, they they say that they're having ongoing discussions with the Max, but again, have have not um, actually put forth any guidance that we can kind of sink our teeth into. So, I guess yeah, that that's sort of my my kind of closing thoughts, and and maybe not as on the bright side as yeah, you. Yeah, I was just gonna say you're the yang and I'm the yang or whatever. Um, and I don't know who what's the white and black if it's yang or yang or whatever. Oh, I don't know either. I I will. I will take being bright-sided today and uh, the expansion, the expansiveness of, of not being able to, or having to do it a certain way, that there's lots of different ways you can prove compliance. That's where I'm going to leave. Yeah, so yeah. It's recorded <laughs> for posterity. So if there's any, you know, next time when I'm not feeling so bright-sided, you can remind <laughs> of, of recording for all time here. Um, and so, so again, I, I think... Andrew and I don't have all the answers, but but I think hopefully um, folks find this helpful in, in at least prompting some thoughts and and um, also working through in your organization what is it that I actually absolutely have to do versus you know what are other things I can be doing and and sort of living in that flexibility and what works and you know don't overpromise don't use things for other purposes and all of that stuff. I mean, I think we shared some really helpful comments. Um, and so we will be providing the sample addendum and election statement along with some other handouts on the post for this podcast. But, but Andrew, this was fun. I yeah. It. It, is, no, um, it was fun. <laughs> um, so, uh, and we get it out before October 1st. So uh, hopefully that, that people can actually, you know, give our, our stuff some food for thought and, and that we can help folks. So, cause that's, that's what we're here to do. So anyway, Andrew, thanks for your time. And, oh yeah, um, thank you. I, I look forward to next time. Yeah, absolutely.